thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is the Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to the programme where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology, and medicine. With me, Chris Smith. And with me, Adam Murphy. This week we look at the Indian variant of COVID, new discoveries from a 40-year-old probe. And new ways to hit for six. Plus, we're going to be discussing ADHD. That's Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. It can lead to difficulty concentrating and focusing on tasks. And many adults don't realise they have it. So what is it? Is it becoming more common? And what can we do to help people who are diagnosed with it? The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. One of the Indian coronavirus variants that's been picked up in the UK is threatening to derail the roadmap for easing lockdown. What's got the government's scientific advisory group SAGE worried is that the variant, which is known as Subtype 2, or B16172, is spreading here three times faster than other imported strains, suggesting it has some kind of enhanced transmissibility. That would strike out one of the government's four tests that need to be fulfilled to proceed with reopening the country. The quandary is that the total number of cases here is, at the moment, still relatively small. The government are also using surge testing and boosting vaccination rates in problem areas, and they're bringing forward the second vaccine doses for some people. So does this mean we're off the hook? And how should we be proceeding? Christina Pargel is a mathematician at UCL. She's been looking at the numbers for us. There are two main sources of information. The first one is the UK COVID Genetics Consortium. They sequence positive samples from about half of the positive cases that we get to try and work out what variant each positive case is. They've shown that there have now been over 1,300 cases of the new variant of concern, the one that's called B1617.2, and it's basically been doubling every week since the end of March. There's another source called Sanger, the Welcome Sanger Institute. And what they do is use the same data, but take out all travellers and take out surge testing. So what they're trying to do is see how widespread is it in the community. And they're getting 500 cases in England in the community, also doubling every week. And distribution wise, where are these cases happening? So they're concentrated at the moment in London and the Northwest, where Sanger estimates that about 20% of current cases there are this new variant. And then also in the east of England, where it's about 15% of cases. And there particularly, it's Bedford. And in the northwest, it's Bolton and Blackburn and Sefton. And in terms of, of how well this variant can spread, 
Because that's a, a critical question, isn't it? Because one argument the government have made in the past when considering variants is that they don't appear to have the same reproductive advantage that our existing strains of coronavirus do, and therefore they're unlikely to gain a toehold. How does this one weigh up against the dominant strain, the Kent variant we have in the UK at the moment? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. With the other variants, they don't seem to have been able to compete against our Kent variant, which has been you know, the most transmissible variant so far globally. But this new one, one of the reasons they made it a variant of concern is because it does seem to be at least as transmissible as that's what Public Health England say. WHO today also made it a variant of concern globally because they're worried about transmissibility. Because what's happened is that in India, it seems as if this new variant is outcompeting the Kent variant. So that kind of implies that it is fitter. And we're seeing it gaining ground in England, also against our dominant Kent variant. And are you comfortable, having looked at the numbers, that this is genuinely comparing apples with apples? Or is it because we're going after this variant and we're looking for it, so we're skewing the data and making it look like it's spreading more? I am worried because you're seeing very similar patterns in in other countries. And you are seeing that it is definitely increasing in the community in a way that the other variants haven't managed to do. So clearly there has been a difference between this variant and the other variants, which can't, I think, be just explained by testing. Do we have any insights into who is catching it? And and specifically, is it people who have already tested positive for coronavirus? And where I'm going with that is One of the other questions we've seen emerging both in Brazil in their outbreak, different variant admittedly, but also India, people appear to be being infected again with this new variant. Is there evidence that's happening here? So this is the the million dollar question. At the moment, there just isn't any evidence. There's a lot of kind of anecdotal stories, but a lot of them from India, people getting reinfected or getting infected after one dose of vaccination. But we don't know what variant they've been infected with because typically they don't sequence cases out there. The one thing we do know from Public Health England is that there was a care home that had an outbreak of this variant, the new variant, where 14 residents got infected with COVID, some of whom had symptoms and some of whom went to hospital after two doses of AstraZeneca. But none of them were severely ill and all of them recovered. So that kind of, to me, implies that it's possible that maybe it can affect people easier. It's not proof. The government must be finding themselves in a difficult position, mustn't they? Because on the one hand, they're announcing we're on track, we're doing well for reopening and easing many of the measures on the 17th of May and onward. Yet at the same time, one of the tests that have been set out to decide whether or not we should do that includes whether or not there are variants that are concerning us. So we're just on the cusp of opening things up again when we see this popping up on our radar. And it seems to be something that's moving in a worrying direction. Yeah, and it is difficult because tests one to three based on vaccine rollout, vaccine efficacy and hospitalizations are all met. You know, that's all going really well. But to me, I so I personally don't think that the fourth test has been met. I think there are there is now a variant that is concerning in its growth. But yeah, it's kind of, you know, do you think that the public health measures are enough to contain it? And if they are, then it probably is safe to open on Monday. But if they're not enough, then it probably isn't. And I don't know the answer to that. So I'm assuming the government has confidence that the measures it has in place is enough to contain these outbreaks. Let's hope so. Christina Pargle there. 
to space now and in 1977 NASA's Voyager 1 probe was launched to study the outer planets in our solar system. After it did that, the mission continued as Voyager explored first the outer reaches of our system and then about a decade ago left us behind and began charting interstellar space. Now, incredibly, with still 70% of its radioactive plutonium power source remaining, Voyager 1 is still going and scientists are still in touch with it, although admittedly it does take about 20 hours for the signals it sends out to get back here to Earth now. But what's even more amazing is that it is still making discoveries along the way too, as Adam's been hearing. In 2012, the probe Voyager 1 passed beyond our solar system and into the emptiness of interstellar space. Except even interstellar space isn't empty, not quite. There's a very tenuous plasma surrounding our solar system, which is like a gas that's had all its electrons separated from its atoms. The stuff is called the interstellar medium. And to put it in perspective, air at sea level has more than a billion billion particles in every milliliter. In the interstellar medium that Voyager's swimming in, there's about one particle in every 10 litres, if my math is correct. We've been able to see big disruptions before in this stellar soup, but it's only now that we've managed to pick up the low underlying signal of the space between stars. I, I, I had spent so long looking at these data that I had come to the point where I really wasn't expecting to find anything new. And then to kind of suddenly notice this, this really faint signal was almost a breath of relief that I hadn't wasted the past few months of my life. That's Stella Ucker from Cornell University who spotted the signal. But getting new science from a probe launched in the 70s is a big ask, and spotting it is no mean feat. So what is this signal? What is Voyager actually detecting? Because a plasma consists of both electrons and protons, it's usually found in charge neutrality. The positive charges of the protons kind of cancel out the negative charges of the electrons. But if you have something perturb the plasma and cause the electrons to become displaced, then you end up setting up an electric field between the electrons and protons that tries to bring them back together and restore the plasma to charge neutrality. And so the electrons essentially try to come back from where they've been displaced, and in doing so, they essentially vibrate. And so what you see is that the plasma vibrates in response to this displacement of the electrons. Those vibrations are what we can detect using Voyager 1. Which means that really, all Voyager needs to pick this up is a really good antenna, and someone willing to comb through all that data. But Voyager entered the interstellar medium in 2012, and the signal was only first spotted in 2017. So there was a while there where we didn't see this little hum of the interstellar medium, but that doesn't mean there was nothing. Uh, before, Before we detected this really faint, persistent vibration of interstellar plasma, we had been seeing these bright plasma oscillation events. These are very massive vibrations that are triggered by solar activity like flares or coronal mass ejections. Um, And those really massive vibrations only last a short period of time. And so we saw those roughly once a year since Voyager 1 entered the interstellar medium. Um, But we're not entirely sure why we've only just started to pick up this really faint, persistent vibration. And this isn't just for fun. 
It gives us a lot of new data as to the structure of the galaxy we live in. So by measuring the frequency of these really faint vibrations, we can infer the density of uh, interstellar space. And because these vibrations persist over such a long stretch of time, we can achieve the an almost continuous measurement of the density um, over the entire three-year period that we found to the signal. So that means we can measure the density now over a straight stretch of space that's equivalent to about 10, 10 times the distance between the Earth and the Sun. And that's the most complete map of the interstellar density that we've had to date. And the reason why that's useful is because knowing how the density behaves tells us about how plasma is distributed outside of our heliosphere. And it tells us what the structure of the interstellar medium actually is in our sun's local interstellar environment. And more than that, these faint kinds of specific signals can sometimes be seen in our own atmosphere. So it might help us understand our own planet a little better. And it's pretty exceptional and pretty cool what a 40-year-old probe can still do. I think for me, the main message is that Voyager 1 continues to make continues to make new discoveries, even from 14 billion miles away. <laughs> Outstanding. Stella Ocker there. And I wonder if that's a wonderful example of nominative determinism. What a great name for a space scientist, after all. She's just published those results in the journal Nature Astronomy. Welcome to the Naked Gaming Podcast with me, Chris Barrow. And me, Lee Milner. Every month we look at the latest gaming news. This is definitely the kind of study that should have probably been done, you know, 10, 20 or 30 years ago. We review the biggest releases. So start up the game on your Switch, connect to your cart, and you're ready to go. And because there's a simulator for almost anything... We play some of the strangest ones available. Okay, so my options are drink a good whiskey, go out and enjoy a hot night, go out and get some fresh air. Let's go with drink a good whiskey. The Naked Gaming Podcast from The Naked Scientists. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, the benefits of treatment treating these conditions over not doing so are absolutely legion the most striking the most eye-popping is that if you treat adhd your chances of getting involved in the criminal justice system are halved we get inside adhd attention deficit hyperactivity disorder one of the many lessons we learned from the covid19 pandemic is the importance of having sufficient medical supplies like ventilators to save the lives of people struggling to get enough oxygen into their bodies now a group of scientists have taken inspiration from the aquatic world of sea cucumbers and freshwater fish called loaches to develop a novel approach. Try to keep an open mind, as Eva Higginbotham explains. Although it might seem strange to us, breathing through your backside has some advantages for the animals that do it. For example, the Fitzroy River turtle in Australia, sometimes affectionately called the bum-breathing turtle, can stay underwater for up to three weeks at a time thanks to this ability. And thanks to new research out of Tokyo's Medical and Dental University and Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, intestinal breathing might soon be something we humans are getting comfortable with. We started looking more carefully about the intra-anus application of oxygen, which turned out to be very effective That's Takenori Takebe. 
he and his team have devised two new approaches for getting oxygen into the blood of mice, rats and pigs, and both take advantage of the fact that the mammalian rectum, that's the last bit of the large intestine before the anus, is both supplied with loads of blood vessels and has a fairly permeable membrane for gases to cross over, making it an excellent part of the body to adapt as another site to breathe from. One is very intuitive approach. We just intubate it from the anus to just to provide oxygen gas continuously. This oxygen delivery is really able to persist the survival in lethal conditions, even up to uh, 60 minutes or even longer. 60 minutes of breathing through the rectum just by pumping in oxygen. Sounds amazing, but also like it could get a bit uncomfortable. The more clinically relevant approach uses a liquid that's very good at dissolving oxygen, perfluorocarbon or PFC. This liquid is already used by doctors during some eye surgeries and sometimes as a type of synthetic blood for transfusions. So we already know that it's safe for humans. So that liquid ventilation approach is also having a greater impacts on oxygenation so as to really rescue the fatal hypoxic conditions in the mouse, lats and pig model system. Incredibly, Takanori showed that when just less than a pint of this PFC was injected into the anus of pigs, they would stay happily oxygenated for up to 20 minutes when in respiratory failure. And they didn't stop there. By re-injecting every 20 minutes or so, they could keep the pigs going for hours or even more. Importantly, though, when we breathe in and out using our lungs, we aren't just taking in oxygen. We're getting rid of carbon dioxide and other waste products too. Throughout the experiments, we are quite surprised to see that carbon dioxide is actually eliminated from the body. So this observation really supporting the idea that oxygen is sucked up into the circulatory system and whereas carbon dioxide is eliminated from the body, as if carbon is working as a breathing or gas exchange apartheid in, in our rectum regions. Takanori imagines that this new technology could be life-saving if deployed in ambulances for people being rushed to hospital unable to breathe, or in hospitals for COVID patients who require extra oxygen, or where there are limited mechanical ventilators. And he's also been approached by some other characters. Yeah, we actually had a, a discussion with the astronauts yesterday, and he is really uh, excited to apply to space applications, particularly in our emergency conditions. So there are a number of potential scenarios we can envision the application of intestinal breathing approach, not just for the medicine, but also for more broader context. So that was really exciting to me. Who knows, perhaps in the future you'll be scuba diving without a gas canister to lug around with you, and instead with a more subtle breathing apparatus to keep you going. Puts a whole new twist on the phrase I've got gas, doesn't it? Eva Higginbotham was talking there with Takanori Takabe from the Tokyo Medical and Dental University and Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And that paper was just published in the journal Med. A new system pioneered in America has helped a paralysed patient to write again for the first time in over a decade. And he's able to do it at the rate of about 90 characters a minute, which is roughly the same time that it takes you or me to tap out text messages. So it's pretty slick. The system works by eavesdropping on the neurological chatter that goes on in the brain's motor centre that fires up when a person makes movements. 
The neurological signals produced there have specific patterns of activity that correspond to the pattern or shape of a movement that a person intends to make. So when you write a letter or a number, that is a specific sequence of movements, so it's represented by a specific sequence of nerve impulses. And even though a person's paralysed and can't transmit those signals to their muscles, the signals are still there. So if you pick them up and teach a computer to recognise them, you can get that person writing again albeit on a screen, which is what Frank Willis and his team at Stanford University have managed to achieve. This is really about trying to restore communication to people with severe paralysis or people who are locked in. So imagine if you can't move any part of your body, how do you communicate your thoughts? And this is about making a device to let people do that. We have made some forays in that direction though haven't we people have have recorded brain activity and and used a computer to decode that and turn it into movement yep one of the biggest ways previously was to enable control of a computer cursor so someone could use a brain computer interface to move a cursor around the screen and click on individual keys on an on-screen keyboard and type things out that way so what have you done that's different So what's different here is handwriting. So to use the brain-computer interface, the person tries to make their hand write each individual letter that they want to type. And it turns out that this method lets us go twice as fast as previous work. How did you do it? It starts with recording the signals. We have two tiny sensors about the size of a baby aspirin that get placed on the outer layer of the brain in a brain area that deals with motor control of the hand. And these sensors pick up electrical impulses from individual neurons, and then we translate these impulses into text. So when he tries to write each letter, that evokes a specific pattern of impulses across the different neurons, and we detect that and figure out what he's trying to write and type it on the screen. How do you figure out what letter they are trying to write? Is that you basically say, right, I want you to imagine writing a letter A or a letter B, and you do Mm -hmm. this enough times the computer therefore can learn when the person tries to do an A, this is the pattern of activity that that bit of the brain generates. Exactly. It's a pattern recognition problem, and that was one of the main challenges in this work was trying to make an algorithm that was accurate enough to you know, reliably tell from these electrical impulses exactly what letter you're trying to write, because we don't have the luxury of recording from every neuron in motor areas of the brain. We can only record from a handful. These neurons are variable and we call them noisy, like they don't always have a clear signal. So we have to see through that noise and be able to reliably pick out what the letters are. I've got a copy of your paper in front of me and you've presented in that paper a facsimile of what the writing in inverted commas, that the person produces looks like. It's stunning. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, we were excited and surprised that, you know, even after 10 years of paralysis, so he hasn't written or moved his hand after 10 years, still the brain activity in the motor areas of the brain still has this very fine structure where we can even figure out, you know, where his imaginary pen is is trying to move and and what these letters look like. How accurate is your system, though? Because obviously, if you want to extrapolate this so a person can write notes and write things down for people quickly in this way, if they're trying to write the word ship, 
they don't want to make a spelling error there, do they? So how accurate is it? <laughs> it's quite accurate. And that's one of the exciting things about it is that we think it might actually be usable in the real world. The raw accuracy before you apply any kind of autocorrection type of system is about 95%. So one out of every 20 letters is wrong. But if you use like modern autocorrection techniques like on your smartphone, we found that when we applied that, the accuracy was above 99%. And if the person starts to actually write whole sentences, because when you just formulate one letter in your mind's eye, that's just one sequence of movements. But often when you write a series of letters, you'd think about joining them up and then joining words into sentences. Does that not blur the movement signals and does that not make the machine make more mistakes? Yeah, well, that's, that's definitely part of the challenging problem is these transitions between the letters. We actually asked the participant to write as if you were writing on a Palm Pilot, actually. So to write in print, not in cursive, and write each letter on top of the previous one. And how did the patient actually respond to this? Well, I think compared to a lot of things, it was pretty easy to use. So one exciting part of this was that even on the first day when we asked him to try to write letters, we got beautiful neural activity back that was highly interpretable. So we didn't have to like train up to use this over a long period of time. I presume your your patient's right-handed. Yes. Because 90% of the population are, so I had a 90% chance mm-hmm. of saying that correctly. But <laughs> have you tried swapping around to the other hand? Can you, for the first time in your life, write neatly with the wrong hand, as it were, with your system, potentially? (laughs) Well, yeah, it's it's interesting because the left side of the brain actually controls the right side of the body and vice versa. So these implants were placed into the left side of his brain and we have him use his right hand to use the system. But actually, we found that contrary to what you might think, this brain area does encode both of the hands. So we can actually ask him to do things with his left hand and pick up activity as well, but it's not quite as strong. And if he gesticulates in his mind's eye as he's writing, does that totally confuse your system? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We we haven't made the system robust to be able to use any hand or anything. We've only focused on the right hand. So that that probably wouldn't go well. A wonderful step forward, though, nevertheless, with the rest of that technology. Frank Willett there, and that discovery has just been published in the journal Nature. Now then, for cricket lovers, there's nothing more satisfying than the sound of leather on willow. But scientists say the sport should be swapping out its willow bats for bamboo. Ben Tinkler-Davies and his colleagues have been testing out a bamboo prototype, and they say it performs just as well, if not better, and improves performance in the materials lab, at the wicket, and even ecologically. Now, Ben joins us now. So, Ben, why would you use bamboo instead of good old-fashioned willow here? So, willow's been used for about 200 years uh, for a cricket bat. And what you're looking for is a stiff, light material. And we decided to look at bamboo as a more sustainable alternative. So, we run a lot of uh, computer simulations and material testing. And we found that in almost all capacities, the bamboo outperformed the willow. So, it's both stiffer, more flexible, and harder. So, this means that when you hit the ball as a player, the ball is going to fly off the bat at a lot higher speed, which is obviously much more advantageous. And the other major benefit is that it's grown close to where the bats are manufactured. Instead of having to ship the willow from England to India, it's grown very close to the facilities to make the bats. So from an environmental point of view, we're cutting down a lot on the carbon emissions from the process. And then how do you go about actually 
turning a stalk into a bat. It's not like you can carve it out from a single bamboo strip. Exactly. So the traditional willow bats are all, you cut down a willow tree and you cut it into, um, into, the, into the shape straight away. But the bamboo culm or what you see going from the ground is hollow. So what you've got to do is you cut it into thin plies. So you split it along the length and then you glue all these plies together. So you really form a, a laminate material. And from that, you can cut that to the right shape and then use the material processes to finish it into the desired shape of the bamboo bat. Now, you mentioned because it's stiffer, it leaves the back quicker. But what about other kinds of performance? What about for, the, for a cricketer picking this thing up? How's it going to go? How's it going to perform? The prototype, the first prototype that we've made is approximately 40% heavier than a traditional willow bat. And this is something we expected because although you see a bamboo column and it's very light, when you process it into its engineered form, it's, it's quite dense. So from a weight perspective, the bat is heavier. But this also means that if you do manage to find the middle of the bat, it, it travels a lot faster. So when we performed a lot of computer simulations, we found that the sweet spot or the, the middle of the bat where you really want to hit it is longer and wider than a willow bat. So this means you've got a more room for error when you're timing your shots. That all comes into the, the sounding too good to be true end of things. So are there any downsides to how this bat works? So like I said before, I think the major downside is the, the weight of the bat. Um, and it's something that we're going to look to build some lighter prototypes, which we can then see how that works. But what a lot of people have said is that, you know, they love the traditional sound of leather and willow. So we tested that, took it to the nets and people said, OK, we can't tell the difference. So we took it into the lab and we said, OK, can we tell the difference here? And it came out that the frequencies or how it sounds is very similar. So although we've got a heavier bat, which we're going to look to optimise and make lighter. For the purists of the game who love that sound of leather on willow, you're not going to lose that. You're just going to have to be getting used to the fact it's leather on bamboo. So the main difference really is the aesthetics and what the bat looks like. But from a materials point of view and from an ecological point of view, we think we found a more sustainable solution to the problems faced with willow and cricket. Well, sounds like you've been hitting for six. Ben Tinkler-Davis there from the University of Cambridge, and they've just reported their findings in the Journal of Sports Engineering and Technology. Much has changed for business owners, managers, and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for your audio and video productions. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Adam Murphy. Now, are you one to suffer forgetfulness and trouble focusing? Do you frequently fail to finish things, have difficulty regulating your emotions and usually find it impossible to sit still? Well, I certainly did. And during the pandemic, when things fell apart for a lot of people, it fell apart for me too. So I decided to get some help. And at the age of 31, I got diagnosed with a condition that affects perhaps as many as one in 20 people. I have ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. I've had it my entire life, but I just hadn't realised. However, now looking back, all the dots join up. So this week, we're going to explore what this condition is, how it manifests, why it happens, and what we can do about it. 
And to kick us off, what's the scale of the problem and what is life like for people with ADHD? Well, Henry Shelford is chairman of ADHD UK and he joins us now. So, Henry, to start off with, briefly, what is ADHD? Well, it's the worst named uh, mental health condition. Attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It's woefully negative, talking about deficit disorder, and it's wrong. So it's, it's not an attention deficit. It's an issue of controlling the attention. Uh, and not everyone has hyperactivity. That's not an essential part. And particularly as people um, become older, in adults, the hyperactive part becomes much less prominent, uh, leaving the majority with inattentive combined. And there's three kinds of ADHD, hyperactivity, inattentive and combined, which is a, a, a combination of the two. Now, with all these things, it's, it's suggested that like one in 20 people are affected. Does that sound reasonable to you? That does. And there's uh, um, actually recent Lancet study that backs that up to around 5%. So in the UK, that's 3.3 million people. And that's reaching the the clinical standard where there's a significant impairment on someone's ability to function. If you take that wider for people with ADHD traits, it's about 11%, so 7.3 million. Right now, obviously, there aren't 3.3 million in the UK diagnosed. So we have a lot of people who have the condition who haven't been diagnosed and are really struggling. What about people like me, you know, the people who struggle and then end up getting diagnosed late? Is that a common story that you, you tend to hear? Well, I, I was diagnosed in my 40s. I know you're going to talk to Dr. Max Davey and he's the same position. The majority of the calls to our charity are adults. One of the things that causes people to, to realise is if they may be at a life point where they've got structures and they're doing OK, but something changes and they realise they really aren't. And this period of COVID has changed a huge number of people's way they work and they've really realised that they have issues. And uh, so we are seeing a lot of adults coming forward saying they've got ADHD. The record we, we know of in the charity is someone aged 73. That's the, that's the oldest. Uh, and we do get a lot of people who, when they realise, is that they just say when they learn about it, just everything falls into place. It all makes sense now how, how they are. And it shows how important shows like this are in terms of educating people so people can can realise and get the help they need. What kind of stigmas do you see out there for people making their way through the world with ADHD? The biggest one is people not understanding that my, my actions are traits and not behaviours. So in neurotypical familiarity, like the things we've talked about of being late or um, bad timekeeping, missing appointments, struggling with deadlines, butting in in conversations, um, zoning out. It's it's not, you know, it's not me being rude. It means I've a thought's caught in my head probably from something you've said and, I've, and I'm following it. But that neurotypical familiarity can equal contempt. A lot of people struggle with their to-do list or managing their day. But their struggle is very different from the impairment and and absolute destruction of life and, and, and careers and jobs and relationships that's happening for someone with ADHD. And what kind of fraction of the kids who have ADHD grow up to be adults with ADHD? It's thought to be around 60% take it carried on into, into adulthood. There's some discussion over that number, but I think the, the clear point is the, the majority do. The hyperactive element becomes less prominent uh, and it's the less prominence is important because it's actually often better social skills and better controlling of self that makes it less obvious. You know, you learn to sort of play with your fingers or play with a little thing in your pocket rather than running around. You're still doing it. The issues of control of attention very much remain there. And actually, when you're moving out of the structures of, of school or, or other education, it then becomes much more difficult. You're supposed to be controlling yourself and obviously you, you can't. So you can, you can hit real problems there 
And certainly as a charity, we get lots of calls in from people turning sort of 18, going into their first job or into university or leaving university and into their first job or changes in their workplace. And retirement actually is another another um, big bump where the work structure goes away and suddenly people are struggling to know how to manage their day. Henry Shelford, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you so much. Was that really in line with your experience? That's sort of my brain as well. That thing that it's not a deficit of attention exactly. It's my brain is... The analogy that's often used, it's a TV with a thousand channels, but I don't have the remote. I'm trying to pay attention to everything at once and ending up paying attention to nothing. So it's a deficit isn't quite the right word. Absolutely resonate with that. And I was the same. School was great. Primary school, absolute teacher's pet nerd. And then as the structure fell away, so did I to an extent. So it's not all about roses. And of course, there are some tougher issues to deal with if you've got ADHD. But how do we actually diagnose it in the first place? Adam has had that diagnosis. What would he have had to go through? Well, Tony Lloyd's the chief executive of uh, the ADHD Foundation. What sorts of symptoms and behaviours are manifest in people, both kids and adults, that you're diagnosing with ADHD, Tony? Well, in children, what we tend to look at is three core characteristics, which which are inattention, poor memory, the inability to maintain concentration, forgetfulness, mind wandering, um, impulsivity, and sometimes but not always hyperactivity. Now, these are natural characteristics that occur in all children, aren't they? What constitutes a diagnosis of ADHD is when these characteristics appear in a more extreme form, but increasingly. Um, clinicians also look at two other things, which are low emotional resilience that inclines towards anxiety uh, and depression, and also what we call poor executive functioning skills, which is the ability to manage distractibility and maintain focus in terms of organising your thoughts, emotions, and how you might factor all of those things in, in how you choose to respond to your environment or not. So with children, we use a whole range of rating scales, but increasingly we're using computer-based cognitive functioning tests, such as QB test, uh, which are over 80% reliable, and they tell us about cognitive functioning, whereas the behavioural rating scales tell us about what the observable presentation is. And that can differ according to context. So we know that obviously children with ADHD are going to struggle much more in a school classroom than they are playing out on the playground. So context and environment is really important in terms of how we discern how ADHD is actually impacting on the child. And what about when someone presents later in their life? We've been hearing about Adam's experience. Would you use the same sorts of criteria or do you tend to approach this differently in adults? No, we approach the same rigorous criteria. We use QB testing and my understanding is that that is going to be implemented by certainly by NHS England across the country as part of a national strategy within a couple of years because it provides that quantitative objective measure of cognitive functioning. I think what we've got to remember here is that ADHD is significantly underdiagnosed in the UK. The World Health Organization says that prevalence should be in the region of about 5.26%. Um, but we know in the UK that diagnostic rates are well below 3%. 
um, and that use of medication is actually below 1%. Um, but we are seeing an increasing number of adults coming forward now because ADHD is less stigmatised. Uh, people have a better understanding of it. It's not some stereotypical uh, idea about you know naughty children, which is you know uh, incredibly unhelpful. Um, and people are understanding that ADHD also correlates, well, undiagnosed, unmanaged ADHD correlates with anxiety, depression, um, eating disorders, yeah. uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, things like that. So we see people mm. presenting with other mental health conditions, and that's when often we arrive at ADHD as an underlying cause. And that could be a giveaway, yes, indeed. Now, given how common this is i mean five percent is a lot of people is it is it actually becoming more common or are we just better at picking it up where previously we may have ignored it or not put people in a position where it would have manifested itself the way it is or, or is is something else changing and um, one we're much better at picking it up and there's less stigma attached to it and also we're also seeing research now that's suggesting that you know every graduate with ADHD is twice as likely to start their own business that over 30% of business owners have either ADHD or dyslexia or both and I think we need to understand ADHD in the context of a neurodiverse paradigm where you have dyslexia which affects approximately one in 10 people autism approximately one in 50 dyspraxia approximately one in 20 and ADHD one in 20 but these things really travel alone. You mentioned there's a genetic link there so does this mean if you see a child manifesting this one perhaps ought to consider the parents as well because they may well also have this and be like adam and not realize and may be able to explain some aspects of of, of their lives on the basis of that yes adhd is over 80 percent genetic if that you know we're, we're certain we know that traumatic brain injury which can be caused by premature birth for example or traumatic birth or, or, or head injury can be a cause of ADHD but for the most part it's genetic so there's usually some family history um, but that doesn't mean to say that either or both parents might have ADHD um, we do know that there is an increased prevalence of ADHD with parents who conceive children in their late 30s or an increased prevalence where parents have had children who've been born preterm but yes there's usually a family history of some neurodevelopmental condition whether it's dyslexia autism spectrum um, ADHD dyspraxia in which case telling the parents might be useful for them as well as the child mightn't it Tony thank you very much indeed that's Tony Lloyd Coming up shortly, what treatments are available for the condition? We've just been hearing from Tony about the diagnosis of ADHD. Now, you have received this diagnosis recently, Adam. How were you diagnosed? Did you go through one of those cognitive tests that Tony mentioned? I had a massive long questionnaire that took about two hours saying, do you do this thing and did you always do this thing? And it was something else because, I mean, when your problem is that you struggle to focus, a two-hour questionnaire is not well, an easy say, task. I was going to say, that sounds like a test in and of itself. I mean, is that part of the challenge? Set people a really long questionnaire and and see if they do drift off because perhaps if they do, maybe they do have ADHD. I mean, the the lady who was t testing me definitely noticed that my attention wavered and went, OK, now it's time for a break and we'll come back in a bit. <laughs> but what sorts of questions are on these cognitive tests? 
It's do you lose things frequently? Do you forget things? Do you make careless mistakes frequently? And did you do all these things as a child? And it's just it's just a bank of that kind of thing. But are you comfortable that the questions are are the kinds of questions that would not just everyone not having a bad day would say, oh, yeah, sometimes I do that? No, because the, the way they do it is like, say, it's distractibility. There are a dozen or so questions that link to that symptom. And I answered yes to enough of them that I'm uh, that I'm an outlier from the normal population. With illnesses like ADHD, some people may say that it's all in your head. And, you know, that may be the case, but that doesn't mean it isn't real. The brain of someone with ADHD is different from someone without. As I heard from King's College London's Katia Rubia. ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder, which means there is an association with changes in the brain compared to healthy age-med children. The differences aren't huge. They're in the order of 3%. So these are small differences, but there are differences. So it's not the case that ADHD are just naughty children who suffer from poor parenting, which, which is often depicted in the media. So they have abnormalities in the structure and the function of the brain. So the structure is like the hardware. The function is like the software of the brain. And what has been shown over the last three decades of imaging is there are differences in the volume of the brain. So they have smaller volumes in areas which develop late in life, like the frontal lobes, the basal ganglia, which is very heavily innervated by dopamine, which is also a transmitter, which is deficient in ADHD, which are deep in the brain and the cerebellum, which is at the very back of the brain. So at the neck level. So these three structures of the brain, they form networks and the functions they mediate are late developing functions which you need for mature adult behavior, like ability to self-control your emotions, your behavior, uh, the ability to control your attention, the timing functions like looking forward, planning ahead in the future, and the ability to shift your behavior. So if plan A doesn't work out, you have to shift and change so when they when ADHD children are put in an MRI scanner and they're asked to do an attention task or a task where they have to inhibit the motor response or a task where they have to do some timing tasks, then these areas are not activated in the same way as they are in healthy controls. So they're underactivated and they're smaller in structure. And there's also evidence that these areas are delayed in the maturation. What it means is that ADHD children behave like younger children. And then how how do you actually test that? What do the experiments look like when you put a kid in an MRI? What do you actually ask them to do? I mean, when you measure the structure of the brain, they do nothing. So they lie in the scanner and we we show them usually a video and they're just asked to lie really still and, and we just measure the structure of the brain. In functional MRI, that measures, like I said, the software, so the how the brain functions when they do a task. So then what we do is we give them a task of attention or a task of inhibition. We give them very short tasks because they get so easily bored. I mean, when we started 25 years ago, everyone said, oh, you cannot scan ADHD children because they move too much in the scanner. But it is actually possible if you give them very short tasks and if they're interesting and short and fast. And then you change, you give, a, give them a little break, then you do the next task. So that's how it's done. We put them in the scanner for one hour. We give them four tasks of five minutes to do. And then we look at the brain in action in vivo while they're doing this task. And that's how we can measure then which areas light up 
when you do this task and then we compare them with healthy controls. And then you mentioned dopamine there when you were talking. How do those chemicals, those neurotransmitters, what role do they play? Neurotransmitters play a huge role in our in our functioning or behavior and, fun- and cognitive functions. And dopamine is very important for working memory, for planning, for timing functions. It's also important for self-control. And it's also important for motivation and um, emotional self-control. And noradrenaline is another neurotransmitter that has been shown to be abnormal in ADHD. And this one is very important for attention. If the brain in people is with ADHD is measurably different, could that be used for diagnosis? It could. We have tried to do that. And we have tried to use uh, what's called pattern recognition analysis, where we're trying to find patterns which could classify ADHD children from quality controls. And we achieved a good accuracy of about 80% classification accuracy. But this is still a very early days because most of the studies we've done so far, I mean, all the studies we have done so far have been based on group statistics. Yeah, So it, it's not the case that every child has abnormalities. There are some children who are normal, others are severely abnormal, and then we look at the group. So to, to diagnose, you need a method which can diagnose individual patients. Katya Ruby there from King's College London. Well, so far, we've heard about how many people are affected by ADHD. We've heard about how the diagnosis is made. And we've heard about the changes that are in the brains in individuals who have ADHD, which affects about one person in every 20. Well, having made that diagnosis, inevitably, our thoughts turn to how we manage the condition. But what does the treatment look like? What sorts of forms do they take these treatments? Well, Max Davies, a consultant paediatrician who works with ADHD UK, what interventions are available, Max? I mean, broadly speaking, the two sorts of intervention that I think are most useful are one, environmental modification, and then secondly, uh, medication. In children, the first one comes first, the environmental modification. So we would look at how people understand the condition around the child. Um, We'd look at the child's brain health. So essentially, that's exercise, sleep and mood. We would support the the family at home. And this could be anything from helping them into uh, parenting intervention to just helping them to sort out their housing. That can be a really crucial element. We need to support them in school and uh, for an older person into employment or training, make sure everyone understands and that they get reasonable adjustments that are required within schools to to help them through. And then medication at the end, generally in children, when when those things have been sorted out as far as we're able. Um, That's the kind of structure of the interventions anyway. What sorts of things in the environment tend to be bad triggers for people that will will disclose more ADHD type negative effects? Yeah, I think it's really, I think you put that really well, actually, in that they don't cause ADHD, but they make your ADHD more troublesome. There's so many of them, but I think a harsh and negative either school or parenting environment will make things worse. Poor sleep is a really big trigger and you can get into a real vicious cycle of sleeping worse. So therefore your behavior uh, is worse and your mood is worse. And therefore the bedtime, uh, any, any parent will know a, an irritable and sleep deprived child is often actually harder to get to sleep subsequently. So you can really get into a big, a big problem there. So I think those are the two really big ones for me. I know you're a paediatrician, but presumably a lot of what you've just said also applies to adults. Yeah, 100%. And I think 
there is a distinction to an extent in that medications offered earlier for adults, but the principles are exactly the same. I think that's really important to emphasise. Now, there's going to be something of a tension because people don't like taking medicines if they can avoid it. And we see this with Mm. a whole spectrum of different diseases, whether it's high blood pressure or, say, depression. People prefer not to have to take medications. But there's an additional element when it comes to children, isn't there? Because people are concerned medicating children has a whole range of different sort of manifestations and and negative uh, associations but one of them is people are concerned that because the the young brain is still developing perhaps that could alter its development in unforeseen or perhaps negative ways is there any truth to that i think the evidence so far is that giving medication to a child who has adhd and you've made a proper diagnosis is probably of benefit to their cognitive development because it gives them more positive experiences everything that we do everything that we put into our bodies or experience changes our brains Um, i i think that if you give the right medication at the right dose to the right child it will actually by giving them vastly more positive experiences going forward will positively impact their brain development so i'm not worried about that really and the medications that we use what are they and how do they work? Basically, they're stimulants, which broadly speaking will stimulate those parts of your brain which supervise the rest of the brain. And they are things like methylphenidate. They are very effective, um, but they do have some side effects. And then there are non-stimulants, tend to be a little bit uh, less likely to be effective, but they are um, a little bit gentler, take a bit longer to work, and they sort of alter the kind of balance of the brain. And they, they kind of alter the way that these supervisory elements can communicate with the rest of the brain. Two different classes of drug that work in slightly different ways and can work together quite nicely. So we we have a a few kind of tricks up our sleeves, even if the first thing we try doesn't work. And is that an indefinite thing? People are then, Mm. I don't want to use the word condemned, but it almost is like that you you have to (laughs) continue to use these medications indefinitely in order to continue to get that effect. It's not a life sentence. So, I mean, I suppose my experience is mainly with children. And and very often what I will say to people is quite often the children are starting this at sort of age seven or eight. And the parents will rightly ask me, you know, is this going to be forever? I suppose my answer is if it works and they tolerate it, we're probably in for a stretch up until secondary school. And then, frankly, the young person will tell you whether or not they want to carry on with it. And and, um, they're very clear about that very often. And And if they want to carry on with it, then they can. And do most people elect to carry on? Well, it's really interesting. Uh, My experience in clinical practice is that most people do. But actually, if you look at some of the data on following people up with medication, there is really quite a high dropout rate. But it's just not something that I experience personally. So I've never quite squared that circle, if I'm completely honest. And do we have any data on people who do go on medication versus people who don't? Is there a sort of a, a clear direction from beneficial outcomes as to what the best choice is so the best data comes from scandinavian birth registries as it often does when you're looking at chronic conditions the comparators there are treatment versus non-treatment so it's not non-pharmacological versus pharmacological treatment so it's not drug versus non-drug it's treatment versus non-treatment but the the benefits of treatment treating these conditions over not doing so are absolutely legion. The most striking, the most eye-popping is that if you treat ADHD, your chances of getting involved in the criminal justice system are halved. That's a staggering difference. 
Mm. It is really staggering. I mean, it's a fairly low number already, but it, it really is a big, big difference. Ma- advantages in employment, education, relationships, all the way through, treating ADHD is better than not treating it. It's not quite the same as saying the medications do this. And there's a bit of an unanswered question about to what extent medication versus these other environmental modifications or supporting the person's mental health are the crucial elements. But certainly going to seek treatment, getting a diagnosis where it's appropriate is unequivocally a good thing. Max, thank you very much indeed for making it so clear. That's Max Davey. And thanks to our other guests this week, Henry Shelford, Tony Lloyd and Katia Rubia. Adam, does that gel with your experience as someone who has also recently started medication for this i mean yeah it it was it was nearly instant and it was transformative the things that have changed i'm you know my anxiety is gone i'm sleeping better i can focus a lot quicker and pull myself into gear a lot faster i'm on on these i'm something of a neat freak in a way that i never was before the house is cleaner than it's ever been it's been amazing putting it all together Well, we must leave it there, but uh, let's move over to a very different situation now, and that's our question of the week. And you're in for a treat, because Phil Sansom's been looking at this really interesting question from Trent. I just got back from walking my dog. Now, about a block from my house, there's a trailer that's been parked there for a year or two, and every time we walk by, the dog pees on the same tire. Got me thinking, urine contains uric acid. Is that strong enough to eat through the rubber of the tire? If so, how long would it take? Hi Trent. While I don't doubt your dog's destructive power, its wee isn't going to eat through that tyre, not in a lifetime of walkies. To understand why, let's look at what happens when the rubber meets the flow, starting with the flow, that is, urine. Urine in mammals is about 95% water. The remaining 5% is various waste products of metabolism, like urea, mineral salts, and indeed uric acid. That can mean that urine is slightly acidic. But uric acid isn't particularly strong, and compared to in birds, where all that white stuff in the droppings is uric acid, in mammals there isn't that much of it. The result is that dog urine normally ranges from only mildly acidic to even mildly alkaline, The actual acidity will vary depending on the dog's age, diet, and health. Okay, what about the tyre then? Modern pneumatic tyres are usually made of cords of steel or fibre covered in rubber. In fact, our tyres have been made out of rubber ever since Robert William Thompson invented them in 1846, 40 years before even the first car. The reason being, rubber is firm enough to resist the road but flexible enough to be comfortable on uneven ground. Plus, the rubber gets vulcanized, meaning that cross-links between the long molecular chains make the stuff even harder. All this is to say that rubber is a very resistant material, not known for its vulnerability to chemicals. Unfortunately, I don't know if anyone's done the specific experiment that would precisely answer your question. You should be the first. But the rubber seal manufacturers, Mykin, do have a chemical resistance chart to make sure that you're using the right type of rubber for the environment. And SBR, the most common type of tyre rubber, has the highest possible rating against uric acid, meaning that they're expecting it to be barely affected. That's why I'm confident in saying that you're not going to be done in for vandalism. 
I also asked David Williams, a vet from the Queen's Veterinary School Hospital, who agreed that the Wii would have no effect on car tyres. And he says, the more interesting question is how your dog is using it to communicate with other dogs through what he calls P-mail. Trent, thanks for your question. Next time, listener Kelvin has a dieting trick he's thinking of trying out. We are told not to um, overcook our vegetables because this um, kills the uh, nutrients. Now, if that's the case, why don't we just then overcook food that we enjoy and uh, not run uh, the risk of putting on weight? Well, any food for thought there? If you can help, come join in the debate on our forum. That's thenakedscientists.com slash forum. Or if you'd like to ask us a question, we're on chris at thenakedscientists.com or use the web form at thenakedscientists.com slash question. And that is it for this week. Thanks very much to Adam who put the programme together and drew on his own experience for inspiration. We appreciate it, Adam. Join us at the same time next week when we're going to be talking about talking birds, believe it or not, to, from wild parrots in Australia that have learned English from SKP pets to bright green parakeets that are taking over the parks in London. We're going to be exploring ways in which humans are changing bird speech and bird song and meeting a particularly chatty, surprisingly feathered guest along the way. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.